Once again, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oro Valley Catholic. And so this weekend, we celebrate the Feast of the Ascension. And the first reading is from the Book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And here's how it begins in chapter 1, verse 1. In the very first book, Theophilus, which means friend of God, I dealt with all that Jesus did and taught until the day he was taken up after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them by many proofs after he had suffered, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while meeting with them, he enjoined them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, about which you have heard me speak. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When they had gathered together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He answered them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has established by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him from their sight. While they were looking intently at the sky as he was going, suddenly two men dressed in white garments stood beside them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking at the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will return in the same way as you have seen him going into heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Catholics believe that Jesus took our humanity to the right hand of the Father, that he is in, with God, in God, in the Trinity, and in his human glorified body. And through our baptism and the sacraments and our Christian faith, we'll join him. This is mysticism. Mysticism is this interior and exterior experience of another world, a deeper reality. Not separate from this one, but deeper, like going to the core of who we are and who we're called to be. And so in this Oral Valley Catholic, we're going to talk about the ascension as mystical experience and why you will not be a Christian very long unless you're a mystic. Stay tuned. Mysticism, it's an experience of a numinous reality. It's the experience of this deeper world, the world where God is present in our own created reality. There's two basic aspects to the mystical. There's the esoteric and the exoteric. The esoteric is, as we think of the interior experience of visionaries, like St. Teresa of Avila and the other visionaries in our Catholic tradition, uh, St. Bernadette of St. Bernadette Subaru. The esoteric is something they experience. It could be imaginative, it could be corporeal, but it's something that the individual sees and understands. The esoteric is always intention 
intention of working with the exoteric. The exoteric is the communal form of mysticism. It's the body of Christ. It's when you go to mass. It's the doctrines of the church. Exoteric means outside of my own body. This communal reality that the apostles participated in as they saw Jesus taken up to the right hand of the Father. So in the Orthodox faith, the esoteric and the exoteric are two aspects of a religious experience. We experience God in our interior experience of prayer and the Holy Spirit, and we experience God by participation in the larger community. The Gnostics, and we live in a very Gnostic time, reduce mysticism to the esoteric. It's an interior understanding. It's an interior intuition. There may be other people that believe the same thing as you do, but that is not what community is. Community is when God himself, the reality of the divine, pulls you into himself. Otherwise, what you basically have is radically autonomous individuals who show up at the same time on the same day and do the same kind of stuff. That reduces religion and spiritual experience to a club, not the body of Christ. So mysticism exists in almost every culture, especially in the uh, religions of the West, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And there's various forms of mysticism in these three uh, religions of the book. Uh, they can be ecstatic, like St. Teresa of Avila had ecstatic visions with deep emotional highs. They can be non-ecstatic. They can be um, intellectual understandings, infused understandings. They can involve visions or not visions. Um, they can be like uh, just a, 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 uh, a conviction of the truth of God's presence. Or you could see the Blessed Virgin Mary at Lourdes. Um, they can emphasize knowledge and wisdom and understanding, or they emphasize love or both. But it's wisdom and understanding, and especially for the Christian, it's love. You know, in the Jewish and the Islamic mystical experience, um, Sufism would be a really good example. Um, Kabbalah in, in Judaism uh, can emphasize dance and song. In the Christian tradition, Eucharistic piety, the presence of Christ in the Eucharist is, is where we find our core and our connection to Christ in his body at the right hand of the Father. And so mysticism, especially in Christian terms, thrives in community. It's why uh, mysticism is very prevalent in orthodoxy and Catholicism, but there really haven't been strong mystical traditions amongst the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, the Methodists. They'll have uh, feelings of connection, emotional realities, but experiencing this mysticism, I don't think that the Protestants have been a strong source of mystical experience or mystical understanding for their, any of the religions of the West. But Catholicism and Orthodoxy is uh, strong traditions of them. And it's because, again, of this creative tension between your interior experience and the dogmas of the church. And so mysticism is this conviction that the empirical world, that which you can test, 
that which you can verify is not either self-sufficient, it's neither self-sufficient, nor is it self-explanatory. Uh, science is powerful, but it really doesn't explain what it means to be John Arnold. Um, the world doesn't explain what it means to be John Arnold. Nature famously doesn't appear to care much about John, but God does. And God is the God of nature. He provides through us for us through nature, but God is not nature itself. God and nature are not the this, this same thing. And so in the mystical experience, how do you get past creative reality to the source of creation? And so the spiritual realm, the sense of conviction, uh, what John Newman would call the iliative sense that brings you to conviction as a Catholic, if you had to explain it to somebody, say, give me the top three reasons, you know, they might not find it as convincing as you do. Because when human beings come to convic convictions, it's not just empirical. There is an empirical aspect to all of our thinking. You know, things that you can measure away, what our five senses tell us about the world. But because we can experience a world beyond that, it's what Plato would say is the evidence that the human soul is spiritual and we're in touch with a greater reality. In fact, Plato and his understanding of reality still continues to inform the, the Christian tradition. You know, the world we live in is profoundly materialistic, profoundly competitive, and it, it revolves around commodities, and it gives us all essential rights and exclusive um, claims and power to what you can and what you can't do to me. Uh, people argue that that's just rooted in the state. Alan Dershowitz, the famous uh, lawyer, says rights are what the state gives you. There's no other basis for rights. But human beings who are Catholic would base human rights in human dignity, and human dignity is the gift of God. And every single person made in the image and likeness of God has human dignity. But friends, that may not be empirically provable. It is, however, a mystical statement. You know, in the contemporary world, we privilege youth over old age, novelty over tradition, independence over the authority of the community, and the individual over the community, and text messaging over sacred text when you look at our communication woes in America. But think instead of our mystical tradition, especially in Catholicism, the wisdom of age, the importance of tradition, the centrality of authority to, to establish Catholic identity and resist corruption um, by uh, all these powers that really are anti-mystical. I want to keep bringing us down to the imminent. Um, we emphasize community and communal belief, that exoteric uh, experience of mysticism over um, the, uh, the authority of individual experience. And so as we think about mysticism, the great example of the mystical is the Paschal mystery. Christ passes from life to death to life to the right hand of the Father. And so to understand the ascension as the essential image of the mystical life we're all called to uh, live 
in our prayer life, in our moral lives, in our communal worship of God, now is a good time to turn and think about the ascension as giving us our true telos, that is our end, the purpose of our life, to dwell with Christ at the right hand of the Father, to participate in the life-giving Trinity, to be filled by the love of God whose love gave us existence, who brings us through life to death to life again. So let's talk about the Gospels and the Ascension. The Ascension is the crucial point in the Paschal mystery where Christ goes through his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and is accepted at the right hand of the Father. It is, in visual terms, like a sacrifice being immolated and raised up to God through the smoke that arises in, uh, up into the air. That's how the ancient Jews would have thought about it, or any ancient Mediterranean religion that offered sacrifice and worship of God. And that's really what separates worship from veneration. Worship always involves sacrifice. But for the Christian, it's always the same sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice and his acceptance by God the Father as he rises to the right hand of the Father and is there in his glorified body. Not as the Gnostics would say, uh, going back to his form before uh, the incarnation, but accepting humanity into this deep relationship with the Trinity. The letter to the Hebrews really cements this understanding, and it's the reason why Christians believe that Christ's sacrifice saves, why the cross saves. Try to explain the salvific nature of the cross absent the resurrection and the ascension. You can come up with sacrifice is important, you can't get very far in life without sacrifice. Love isn't possible without sacrifice. All of that is true, and all of that is a dimension of the cross. However, the salvific nature of it is that sacrifice was offered for your redemption, for your salvation, so that by eating the sacrifice in the Eucharist, you might join the Lamb of God at the right hand of the Father. This is the book of Revelation. But the letter to the Hebrews talks about it also, all throughout, really. But I'm going to quote the part that is, uh, we would read it in Mass this weekend from Hebrews 9. And here's what it said. Christ did not enter into a sanctuary made by hands, a copy of the true one, but heaven itself, that he might now appear before God on our behalf, not that he might offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters each year into the sanctuary with blood that is not his own, if that were so, he would have to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. And so Christ is offered, and he goes into God's temple in heaven, not the temple on earth, because he's done it once for all. He doesn't have to do it again. But the limitations of the religion of the Israelites is it had to be done and repeated yearly. When we offer Mass, we are joining to that one essential sacrifice that happened once for all. We participate in that as an oblation offered to God when we come to communion. And now Hebrews continues in chapter nine. But now once for all, he has appeared at the end of the ages to take away sin by his sacrifice. He, so he's um, substituted himself 
um, for the goat that the Jewish, the Israelite people used to, to offer. Just as it had appointed that men and women die once, and after this judgment, so also Christ, offered once to take away the sins of many, will appear a second time not to take away sin, but to bring salvation to those who eagerly await him. And so from the very beginning, the ascension was seen as Christ, like the high priest, entering into the holy of holies, the reality of the presence of God, to constantly pray to God for us, to offer himself to God for us. So we find ourselves with this perpetual high priest, and we join in that when we go to Mass. Even if you feel uncomfortable, bored, or the kids are driving you nuts, what makes your worship perfect at Mass is Christ's worship. So the ascension is the central part of the Christian mystery. Why it is that the cross saves across time, goes into the past and out into the future. Jesus takes his body, which is now crucified and risen, still with his wounds, and he brings that glorified human nature, that glorified body into the heavenly sanctuary. In this sense, it's both an historical event that it actually happened in time and space in our world, but it connects us through to the eternal world. It is both what you can visually see and what you understand through faith and the witness of the Spirit in the church to what the mystical reality is of Christ's ascension into heaven. That's why you don't get very far as a Christian if everything has to be proved by scientific terms. It is inherently a mystical experience. And it relativizes scientific knowledge because science can't even speak about meaning or purpose in the world. It can find reality in, it, in this teleological nature of reality, that nature has an end purpose in life, like to bring human beings into existence. However, this supra-rational understanding of faith takes us beyond where mere rational thinking can take us. So on earth, our Lord fulfills the feast of the Passover and the sacrifice of the Passover lamb in his ascension. He doesn't have to do it every year. He's done it once for all. We remember every year, just like the Jewish people, even today remember God's saving reality in the Passover, which is salvific and part of the covenant that doesn't end with the Jewish people. But for Christians, we understand reality has been expanded. Our understanding of reality has been expanded by the, by the Lord's ascension. You know, it really does go back to Leviticus 9 because you can't understand what Jesus did uh, without reference to the Old Testament. And so it says in the reading of the ascension that Jesus raised his hands and blessed his disciples, just like Aaron does. In, remember, Aaron is Moses' brother and the first high priest of Israel. Um, and in Leviticus 9, which is um, the, the holiness texts in the Torah. And here's what it says in Leviticus 9. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. 
So Jesus does what Aaron did. He, instead of coming down back to the people after offering the sin offerings, he's taken up into the eternal uh, temple uh, in heaven. This is how Christianity fulfills the promise made to the people of Israel. And so Christian evangelization, according to the gospel, emphasizes three things. First, that we preach the forgiveness of sins. We find wholeness and healing in Christ. Secondly, we proclaim his name, Jesus, Yeshua, God saves, and that he is the privileged way to unity with God. And then we point out that this isn't simply about, this isn't a club, it's not about an ethnic group. This loving God has made his sacrifice available to all. And so let's pull this all together in the final part of Oro Valley Catholic and talk about the exoteric experience of mysticism and your own esoteric experience of mysticism, how the two come together, especially when we bury our dead. Marx's criticism of Christianity, and you hear it through the secular world sometimes, Christianity is pie in the sky when you die. But that is not what Christianity is. Life eternal begins in this world, and it's about living a life in this world, the reflection of faith in the kingdom of God. So mysticism is this interior experience of the peace and comfort, the challenge of the gospel made present in this community that we live in in the church as we bring out the preaching of the forgiveness of sins, in the name of Jesus Christ, to a universal understanding. And remember that Christ's sheep hear his voice. Uh, the Paschal mystery is this privileged path to unity with God. I preached about modern Gnosticism, especially New Age religions, where it's all intuitional, that is all esoteric. There's no exoteric reality to it. It's how spirituality is divorced from religion. But for a healthy, saving reality, the ex religious experience of the people and our individual esoteric experience have to be in communion. And so Christ's ascension was not something that happened in people's minds and hearts. It's an historical event that happened one day uh, as Jesus ascended into heaven. And so to deny the ascension is, as John, uh, the letters of John would say, is, is to be antichrist. It's to deny the revelation of heaven in this world. And so as Christians, we do not separate spirituality from religion. Orthodox, Catholics, very strong. The possibility of Protestantism in that regard, it's a tougher one to understand because Protestantism is such a fractured um, event. You know, St. Cyril of Jerusalem in the fourth century uh, instructed in the beginning of his uh, catechesis, his catechism for his people. He said, lift up now the gaze of his spirit. Picture now to you yourselves the spirit, the choirs of angels, God, the Lord of the universe on his throne, his only begotten son at his right hand, and the spirit beside him. This is meditation to think about the reality of the faith of the church 
in your, in your meditations. You know who did this was Teresa of Avila, uh, 16th century of uh, the Reformed movement in the Carmelites. And Teresa talks about it all the time. She had lots of visions. She is like one of the prime writers and examples of mysticism, this great woman mystic. But overwhelmingly, her mysticism, her visions are very corporeal. Christ with his wounds, angels are visible to her. And it really is carried forward in many Marian apparitions. And none of really our visionaries have become uh, mystical writers or mystical doctors like Teresa of Avila or John of the Cross. But they share this same experience of entering into this reality of Christ in his glorified body at the right hand of the Father. Um, you know, when the Protestant Reformation came, um, they denied that the Eucharist was um, the real presence. It's, it's a really mixed bag in Protestantism. You can't make any generalization about Protestant faith. But when you deny the connection between Christ and his glorified body at the right hand of the fa Father and the Eucharist that he gives you as this part of this oblation on the altar at Mass, um, you're denying this essential link between this exoteric reality of Christ's ascension and your interior experience of Christ as you take and eat, as he says. What can be more interior than bringing the body and blood, the soul and divinity of Jesus Christ into your own person? Um, St. Augustine said that the head of the church is in heaven, his body is on earth. This was fundamental to his notion of deification. That is, we consume Eucharist as we try to live a Eucharistically coherent life by our love for our brothers, how we care, brothers and sisters, how we care for the poor. Uh, this is all about how it is that this spiritual, mystical reality becomes part of our individual experience of what it means to live Christ in the world. You know where you really see it? You see it in what in ancient language is the transitus. The transitus is the transition that you and I will all go through from this life through death to life glorified in Christ. And so that portion of the liturgy of the funeral mass especially or the anointing of the sick is part of the transitus. You know, um, how it is that we come to eternal life. Socrates, when he died, thought that there were probably many paths when you pass through death. That's why it was very important that you had a guide to follow to heaven. And so for him, it wasn't that you don't have options after death. It's just you have so many options, it's just a mess. And so for the ancients, someone like Hermes, who was the um, guide of souls um, uh, across the waters of death to the underworld. That's why in the ancient world, um, they would put coins on your eyes or put a coin between your teeth so you could give the coin um, to the, uh, the river Styx as you were ferried across and pay for your your uh, your your way across the river of death into the, um, into the underworld. And so 
That's a pretty grim understanding of the transitus, that you're still paying your way. Christians preached in this world. The guy, they said, was the one who ascended to heaven. He knows the way. I always think it's interesting in near-death experiences that people claim to meet the Lord uh, in these times uh, when, when and one, their heart has stopped, their brain has sporadic activity, but they have these clear understandings of meeting loved ones um, and this sense of peace and they will be okay. But the Christian church also helps um, with the transitus. It's why we have funeral masses, why we take bodies to consecrated ground, that what we do on this side of death is not only honoring, but part of the passage through death to eternal life. And the problem of divorcing spirituality from religion is you just kind of make it up what you think happens. It's uh, really the sin of presumption for how Catholics would think about it. So anyway, when you're dying and you call the priest and he gives you the anointing, uh, there's the commendation of the dying. And so the litany of the saints is read. And remember, it's because we want the saints to bring you into heaven also. You are not alone. You have brothers and sisters. Jesus talks about it like this. Mary is our consoler. And then the priest will read this to you from the commendation of the dying. Depart, Christian soul, from this world in the name of God the Father, the Almighty, who created you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who suffered for you. In the name of the Holy Spirit, who was poured out upon you. But the nine choirs of angels and the throngs of saints are mentioned also in all of this. Depart in the name of the saints of God. May your dwelling today be in peace in your home in Holy Zion. And there you are surrounded by your loved ones, praying for your transition. You are not helpless in the face of death. Modern science may be, but you're not helpless. You understand that the mystical experience of death, from life to death to life, this is the Christian life. It's why we pray to St. Joseph for a holy death and why it is in our, um, in our funeral liturgies that we pray for the dead. And so in the preface of the Mass for the dead at your funeral, you'll hear this, because you'll be listening in heaven. Hopefully the homily will be good. For those who believe in you, Lord, life is not taken away but transformed. That's the transitus. Death is transformation. And where do we get this? John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears, no, this is the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 24. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. The Feast of the Ascension. God be praised.